Testament reading today uh, from 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3. Now, it says there 1 to 17. I've chosen today to, to split these two passages up. We're in no rush. And to look at the uh, second passage on Scripture next week. So I'm going to read uh, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 9. Paul says this. He says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's praise uh, the Lord together on the bottom of page five. Bless the Lord, all you works of the Lord. Sing his praise and exalt him forever. Bless the Lord, you angels of the Lord. Sing his praise and exalt him forever. Let the church bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, you priests of the Lord. Bless the Lord, you servants of the Lord. Sing his praise and exalt him forever. Bless the Lord, all those of upright spirit. Bless the Lord, you that are holy and humble in heart. Bless the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Sing his praise and exalt him forever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, it is now, and ever shall be world without end. Amen. And our gospel reading today from Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 10, reading verses 16 to 42. <clears throat> Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. 
and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of far more value than many sparrows. And so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we uh, move now to hear from your most holy word, I pray, Father, that you'd give us ears to hear. I pray that your spirit would be our teacher. I pray that uh, the word of life would be sweet to our taste and that it would be nourishing to our hearts and souls, and that you would sanctify us by the word of truth today. Lord, set us apart as a people of God by your word. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this place today, Father God, may they be acceptable to your sight, we pray. O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer, in Christ's name, amen. 
If you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to 2 Timothy 3 and keep them open there. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. I have said that to a number, but happy Mother's Day to all. We honor you and we love you uh, in this place. Um, I want to make several points as we walk through uh, this first section. What Paul does here uh, in chapter 3, the first half is a rather dismal picture of, of humanity and what's coming, and it's a dismal picture of the church in some sense. And then in the second half of chapter 3, Paul gives the answer to all that trouble, and that answer being the, the Word of God, which is m- far more than sufficient for all the trouble that's brewing in the world. So we're going to look at the first part today, and then next Sunday we're going to look together at what the Word of God means, especially as Paul understood it in his day, um, and how we can profit by it. <clears throat> well, the first thing that Paul says here in chapter 3 is prophetic, uh, in the sense that he's looking forward uh, to the last days, and he's speaking now as a prophet. Paul is speaking with a prophetic edge and a prophetic voice describing the, the eschaton. And uh, we have to acknowledge frequently the centrality of Paul's eschatological worldview. The, what's called the parousia, the arrival of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, was a dominant motif in Paul's thought. You, you heard that, that phrase, light, a light motif, if, if you've studied literature. It's a light motif in Paul. It's a central um, uh, dogma that is constantly reappearing in Paul. It's constantly motivating Paul. And I think we've not even scratched the surface as to how important the Lord's coming is to Paul's theology. He lives for the day of the Lord. He suffers in view of the day of the Lord. He endures because of the fact that Jesus is coming. And Jesus will deal justice to all those who've done evil. And Jesus will reward with a crown all those who've done well in his name. So at the very end of this letter, Paul says, I see it. I see a crown waiting for me. Um, and so it's a helpful, it's a helpful exercise uh, to take some time to go from a Romans through to the last of Paul's epistles and see how often that doctrine of the Lord's day appears in Paul's theology. It's very, very important. And it's very important in the Gospels in general. I was just reading um, recently in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 19, and there's this lovely word that Jesus uses... Um, palingenesia. Palingenesia. This is a word that means the new world. I watched a movie not too long ago about the new world, about uh, the um, the conquistadors in in North America. But that new world properly belongs to the eschaton, the recreation of all things. And Jesus says this. He says, "In the new world, palingenesia." When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. He says, everybody who's left houses, everybody who's left brothers or sisters, or if you've left fathers or mothers or lands or positions, for my sake, you will be rewarded 100-fold in that new world when I come to sit on my glorious throne. Then he says to his disciples, you too, will sit on thrones, governing the nations. 
That word palingenesia, the new world, is used often in ancient literature to refer to the world after the flood. God has already done this, right? God has already cleansed the world of all evil and started all new. But the man he started with was the, he was the best man in all the earth. Noah was godly. Noah was a righteous man. He was the most righteous man in all the earth. But even Noah, as a man, couldn't, wasn't up to the task to take this new creation and lead it in the way of righteousness because he was a man. But Jesus Christ now, when he comes as the new Noah, the best Noah, the herald of righteousness, he will now lead this new creation into all glory and righteousness. And so this is, there's something that we need to get a hold of as God's people with respect to fixing our hearts on the new world, the best world. Now, Paul evidently thought that it was just ahead. If you read Paul's epistles, it's very, very clear that Paul thought that the second coming was imminent. He thought it was perhaps in his lifetime. You know, in, Peter's, in one of Peter's letters, we hear that phrase, where is the promise of his coming? Um, and some critics of the New Testament have thought that Paul was simply wrong. Well, in some senses, Paul was... Uh, <laughs> Mistaken in the sense that Jesus didn't come in his lifetime. He still hasn't come 2,000 years later. But Paul was not wrong in expecting Jesus to come imminently. Uh, Ronald Ward, Ronald Ward was a New Testament professor at Wycliffe back in the day, Anglican minister. He says this, he says, early Christians made no mistake in expecting the parousia in their time. They were just being obedient. Paul was just being obedient. Why? Because this is what Jesus says. Therefore, you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Was Paul mistaken that Jesus was coming in his lifetime? Paul was just being obedient because Jesus said, You, Paul, must be ready. For I'm coming at an hour when you do not expect, perhaps even in your own lifetime. And that should be, the, uh, should, should be true for us. So Paul is fixed on it. Paul is convinced by Jesus' words that he could come anytime. Um, and he begins now to enumerate or to list all these various signs of the end. And he starts to go, I mean, as you read it, as I read it, it just gets worse and worse. I can imagine Paul writing these things and just, oh, and there's this, and there's this, and there's that. And it's very, very bleak. It's very, very grim. The sign of the eschaton, according to Paul, is complete moral collapse. The sign of the eschaton before Jesus' coming is complete moral collapse and it's apostasy. This is clear. Now, what we have to do here, because Paul says, as he goes through this list, he then says, people like these, you need to steer clear of. And so it's very evident to us as we go through that litany of bad qualities that these things existed in Paul's day and these things exist in our day. But they do not, they exist in kind, 
but they do not exist now as they will then. The sense from scripture is that we have no idea how bad it will be. Jesus, in our gospel reading today, he speaks, I think, in two senses. He speaks in times now where persecution will come, but he's speaking of a reality then, immediately preceding his coming, when we will be hated by all men for his namesake. And as Jesus describes the treachery that's going to go on, fathers putting their children to death because of Jesus, and children putting their parents to death, it's very, very bleak. We have no idea what it will be like. And so there's a difference of the, between these two things. There's a difference between um, signs that are the spirit of the age, which we see now, people swollen with conceit, people who are boastful, people who are arrogant, people who are not lovers of good. These are signs of the spirit of the age in which we live. They were true in Paul's day, they were true in our day. But there are signs that will herald the parousia. And those signs will be unlike anything we've ever seen. It is going to get really bad on earth for followers of Jesus. It's not getting better and better. It's going to be really, really bad. This is what Jesus says, and this is what Paul says. And so our need is to brace as Christians for moral collapse, and our job is to brace for spiritual apostasy. Jesus says, when I return, remember that phrase, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? Moral collapse, spiritual apostasy. We should not be surprised then at these things. We should not be surprised at moral collapse. I think we see it today. I think, I think you know, I don't think it'll be a sudden, all of a sudden shift, 180 degrees. It's going to slowly get worse and worse and worse. And we see evidences of moral collapse. Now, in some senses, this is always true. I, you know, as an historian, any century that I read, they're always saying it was better the century before, right? In the 16th century, the Puritans were saying, if only we had it like this, in the 17th century, they're saying, if only we had it like they had in the 16th century when they were godly. In the 18th century, Wesley was looking back to the Puritans. In the 19th century, they were looking back to the evangelical revival of the 18th century. In the 20th century, we look back to the days of Spurgeon. In the 21st century, we look back to the days of Lloyd-Jones. We always do that. But in a sense, I think, as we move towards the signs that herald the end, we will see a gradual worsening of things and that moral collapse taking shape and the apostasy taking shape. People who no longer cling to the word of God and the gospel. Churches failing. Churches buckling under societal pressure. Churches collapsing and no longer being willing to speak the word of God in the face of mounting pressure from society. You remember what the, the apostles said to, the, um, to, to Paul and to Barnabas as they went out they come back from the preaching of the Gentile world. They come to, to Jerusalem where they receive the Jerusalem quadrilateral, those four um, things to say to the church. And there are a number of things that they say, things that mostly have to do with, um, with um, cultural sensitivity to the Hebrews. Don't do stuff that's going to unnecessarily upset them, such as eating things that are strangled and you know eating food offered to idols. Don't do that. But then they say, Paul, you need to warn the Gentiles against sexual immorality. 
You must speak to that. Boy, as a church today, we have a very hard time speaking to that. The one thing that the, the, the James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, is you must not um, fail to speak to this Paul. You've got to speak to that, if nothing else. Well, we will see collapsing in the church. We will see collapsing in the society, and we need to brace for it. You'll notice in, in the list, the litany there in chapter 3, that there's a shift from vice and wickedness to religious appearance. So in verse, um, chap, uh, in verse 5 of chapter 3, Paul says, these people, they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Now, that's, that's kind of shocking as you read through this, this terrible, terrible list of vices. And, and you go through them, and then all of a sudden, when you hit this verse in, uh, in verse 5, you realize Paul's talking about people in the church. He is talking about the world, but verse 5 means that all this stuff that's happening refers to people in the church having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, the form of religion. Now, I grew up Pentecostal, and I've always had a hard time um, uh, kind of resting myself from a reading of this verse. I just kind of do it naturally. It's not a good thing. Um, you know, but we're told, you know, the, the charismatic would have it that what Paul means by not having power is not having the kind of the, the divine energy to do the miraculous, or the divine energy to kind of speak to the tree and see it uprooted from the ground and cast into the sea. Paul refers to this elsewhere, right? In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is referring to the super apostles, all these guys who don't want Paul to come back to Corinth and are dissing Paul and are trying to, dissu to dissuade the Corinthians from Paul's teaching. And Paul says, I'm going to come to you soon. And I'm not interested in what these super apostles are talking about. I don't care what they say. I want to know their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Now again, a charismatic reading of that, which I was raised with, it's very difficult to get out of. As Paul's talking about, you know, are they just rhetoricians or can they perform miracles? But that's not what Paul is talking about at all. The, the, the idea here is power to obey the word of God, power to live the godly life. They have the appearance of godliness, but not the power of it. They cannot do. It is faith without works. It is profession without living a godly life. The power that Paul means here is living like Christ. Faith, hope, love, obeying the Lord. Chris Austin says here uh, 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 about this verse in uh, 2 Timothy, what advantage is faith if we do not do the works that characterize godliness? What advantage is faith if we do not do the works that characterize godliness? And that's just the, the, uh, the epistle of James. What matters is your obedience to the word. And um, in, in the future, what we're going to find is, is a attestation to the faith but no godliness no obeying the Lord uh, in all of his, his precepts Paul says now he moves on here to talk about weak women 
Um, this is <laughs> a rather kind of uh, inopportune text, I suppose, for Mother's Day. Um, but uh, a, a couple things that you should know. Um, the Greek word here is a diminutive. It's a diminutive of the noun for woman. What Paul says here by the use of this word is there, it's a shadow of a real woman. So he's not talking about women. The King James says silly women, right? I was reading Chrysostom on this, and uh, he has this... this <laughs> there are certain things that preachers used to be able to say that they can't say anymore. And uh, Chrysostom says this. He says, he who is easy to be deceived is a silly woman. And nothing like a man, for to be deceived is the part of silly women. And I thought that was so funny that I, I have a friend down in the south. He works for Desiring God in Minnesota. And I texted him this, this quote from Chrysostom, just a kind of a joke, right? Well, he was driving to church with his family, with his brand new van, with a console that reads texts. And uh, his wife saw my name come up and she goes, oh, let's hear what John Vickery has to say. And she punched it and she heard, he who is easy to be deceived is a silly woman, etc." Now they laughed because after that I had put hashtag things that preachers can no longer say. And, uh, but um, silly women, weak women, is a diminutive of the female word, or the word for a female, or, or the noun for woman. Paul means these women are a shadow of the real thing. He's not talking about real women. He's talking about bits of women, little segments of them, little partial fleeting shadows of the real thing. And what we want to do at Christ Church is to foster real women, robust women, strong women. But there are some women in the church uh, who are, quote-unquote, silly. They're, they're um, fragments of women. And these are those who haven't matured past their youthful sins. Paul says they're burdened by sins, and they're given to various appetites. They've never outgrown them. They've, they've been captured by certain sins in their youth, and they've never matured beyond them. And, you know, at Christ Church, we want to move beyond that. We want to help all women to grow past their youthful sins and to grow strong in the Lord and to become the real thing. By the way, men can do this just the same. Paul is drawing now upon a very specific historical occurrence in the church where there were certain women who were subject to these uh, false teachers. Um, but men can just as easily be silly... Men can just as easily be fragments of what, we, uh, what they ought to be. We want to make giants in the land, is what we want to do here. Well, Paul says that there are some women who are uh, easily deceived. They are burdened by the sins of their youth. They haven't matured. And certain people have um, taken advantage of this. Namely, here he talks about Janus and Jambres. Now, where does Paul get their names from? Janus and Jambres are not named in the, in the Bible at all. These are the magicians who contested Moses. Um, their names aren't in the Bible. Chrysostom seems to think that Paul just was given the names by inspiration. Their names are actually listed in, the, in one of the, the Qumran uh, documents, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Damascus document. We see them there. Paul had access to these scrolls that were circulating um, Judea. Um, Janus and Jambres 
stand for those in the church who oppose the work of God, even as these magicians oppose the work of God under Moses. And Paul says these people, they come into the church. They're in the church now, and they will be in the church then. And you must be aware of them. They exist to oppose the work of God. And um, uh, this is just something I think we need to, to brace for as a church. And I'll be very, very kind of sincere with you guys. We've, we've already wrestled with this stuff as a young church. I was told to stop telling you guys what to do. I was beseeched by someone to say, you, we, we don't, you don't need to tell us how to behave. You don't need to tell us God's commandments anymore. All we need to hear is the gospel. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is pardon and freedom in the Lord Jesus. And the gospel is obedience in his name, empowered by the Spirit, living godly and righteous life. Because if we don't live the godly and the righteous life, it's a form of righteousness, it's a form of godliness, but denying its power. People have come, people will come into the church who oppose the work of God, Janus and Jambres. And we are naive to think that that will never happen in our church. It has and it will. And so what a work there is ahead of us. What a work there is ahead of us embracing for moral collapse in the world, embracing for spiritual apostasy in the church, and dealing with the Janices and the Jambres that are going to come into the midst of the church. How do we deal with it? What are we going to do? The only answer is in the Word. And this is what we're going to see next week. The answer for us is in the Bible. Being a people of the book, built upon the Word, proclaiming the Word, becoming a people of the Word. And that's all that we want to do at Christ Church, is by God's Spirit and His grace under Jesus, is to become a people of the book together. To avoid, to avoid all of these dangers. And so God grant us grace, and God, God grant us help today to do this in his name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.